The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So question, what makes you really angry? <laughs> no, I don't mean the things that merely bother or irritate you. Some people sound like they got really angry very recently. <laughs> yeah, I'm not talking about irritants, no. You know, because for many of us that could be a really long list. It could be things as simple as my fries are a tad bit too cold. Or, you know, just people who mispronounce your name or mispronounce other people's names. I'm asking about what makes you livid, what makes you vexed, you know, dark, or, in, in, or, or, or not, not Patwa, but English, incandescent. It's interesting how what? in Patwa, we get dark, and then you'll talk about being incandescent with rage. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. You never heard that? No. Yeah. Okay, so you're learning things. Great. That's why we're here. I hope that that list of things that make you really angry is not too long of a list. But once again, I recognize that it could vary greatly. It might be people who mistreat you or take you for granted. It might be corruption or injustice or abuse experienced by others. However widely that list may vary from individual to individual, everything that we would put on such a list has one thing in common. The things that make us really angry reveal much about our hearts. They reveal what we prize and what we despise, what we love and what we hate. And that picture is unflattering because our loves and hates reveal not just the image of God in us, but also how our hearts have been distorted by sin. Far more than we'd want to admit, many of the things that make us angry have nothing to do with God's kingdom and His righteousness. They have to do with our own kingdoms and our own selfish desires. But Jesus is not like us. So what makes Jesus really angry? As we've made our way through the Gospel of Mark, the author has unashamedly portrayed Jesus in his humanity. We can relate to his emotional life. We've seen him surprised and grieved and exasperated. Today in Mark chapter 10 verses 13 to 16, we'll see him angry, livid in fact. He was indignant with his disciples, his closest companions, with his friends. What made Jesus so angry? And what does it reveal about him, the one whose heart beat only for the kingdom of God? For those of us who have set out on the path of following Jesus, this is an important moment. It's going to reveal to us not only what our king hates, but what he loves. And therefore the nature of his kingdom and how we're being called to please him. So let's pay close attention to this short text in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. This is God's holy word, revealing the heart of Jesus our King and Savior. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, 
Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. In this very brief account, the heart of the king and the nature of the kingdom are vividly portrayed. Many of us grew up singing songs about Jesus' love for little children. But Jesus' posture would have been surprising to Mark's original audience. And we always need to remember that Mark is preaching to us. He has arranged these accounts deliberately. He's been addressing different attitudes and spheres of life as he retells Jesus' teaching on what it means to follow him. Last week we saw Jesus' daunting teaching on marriage. Now Mark focuses our attention on children. And here's what we see. The way Jesus welcomed children reveals the nature of God's kingdom and the values his followers are to embrace. Let me say that here again. The way Jesus welcomed children reveals the nature of God's kingdom and the values his followers are to embrace. The intensity of Jesus' anger at his misguided disciples, the unexpected gravity of what he teaches as he corrects them, and his eager embrace of little children reveals what he values and what his kingdom is like. And as we witness these interactions, we are not just spectators, we are students. Mark means for our values to be shaped by Jesus' values since we are his disciples. And as is often the case, despite our nice Sunday school songs, his values are going to challenge how we think as much as they challenge his original disciples. The way Jesus welcomes children reveals the nature of God's kingdom and the values his followers are to embrace. I'm going to unpack this short text by focusing on and exploring three insights that emerge. Jesus welcomed and blessed children. Jesus' disciples must receive the kingdom like children. Jesus' teaching must shape our attitudes to children. So let's go. Let's dive right in. Jesus welcomed and blessed children. Now I forgive you if that doesn't sound very insightful to you. You might even be thinking, of course he does. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. You know, we, we've been singing those lyrics wrong for years. Whether we're they are black or red or But if you had a Sunday school experience similar to mine, you might even have pictures permanently affixed to your, your imagination of this very Caucasian-looking Jesus with blue eyes and brown hair, sitting on a rock surrounded by children and the obligatory lamp. But I want to paint a different picture for you today. One that's a lot darker than those Sunday school books. You see, it's only when you understand the world of Jesus' day that you can begin to see how amazing his attitude to children was. Have you ever seen those pictures from these baby photo shoots where they dress up children in all kinds of things and they pose them with all kinds of props and they work them into scenes when they're lying down? So they'll pose them in a scene like they're on a surfboard, you know, and there's a wave below them, or they'll pose them like they're, you know, an astronaut in space. Uh, to be honest, I have big issues with that sort of thing, but, but we're not here to talk about my pet peeves. Yeah. The point is this, that's not how the people of Jesus' day saw children. Mark Strauss points out, while in Western culture we tend to view children as innocent, vulnerable, gentle, even pure, in the first century culture, they were viewed as insignificant and having no social status. 
He goes on to point out that women and children were often victims of exploitation and abuse in the ancient world, as they still are today. In Mark's Gospel, we're observing Jesus as a full-grown man teaching about the Kingdom of God. But it's staggering to think that the Son of God would condescend to enter a world like that, born as a baby, to poor parents. He experienced life as a child in those days. The first century was a man's world, and to be specific, a free man's world. Rebecca McLaughlin points out that in Greek and Roman thought, Free men had more inherent dignity and worth than women, slaves, or children. McLaughlin refers to the work of Paul Offit, an American professor of pediatrics. As a part of his exploration of the history of medicine, Offit read the Bible, and he was stunned by Jesus' posture towards children. He wrote, You have to be impressed with the man described as Jesus of Nazareth. At the time of Jesus' life, around 4 BC to 30 AD, child abuse, as noted by one historian, was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Infanticide was common. Abandonment was common. Hippocrates, who lived about 400 years before Jesus, often wrote about how physicians should ethically interact with patients. But Hippocrates never mentioned children. That's because children were property, no different than slaves. But Jesus stood up for children, cared about them, when when those around him typically didn't. Jesus welcomed and blessed children. At the end of this short passage in verse 16, we see him taking children in his arms and blessing them. So even though the term used here for children uh, can refer to those up to 12 years old, this gives you a picture of the ages of the children that, that were coming to him, at least some of them, that day. He welcomed them into his presence and dedicated time to receiving them. He touched them and surely you could picture him smiling at them and speaking tenderly to them. Unfortunately, among those around Jesus who typically did not welcome children were his own disciples. As we've seen before, Jesus' disciples were a product of their culture, a product of the culture they inhabited. They saw the social pecking order the way everyone else did. So in verse 13, when parents and possibly older children tried to bring young children to Jesus for him to touch them, seeking the blessing of this great teacher, they were not having it. Picnic. Brother, Jesus not a time for picnic. You think I did hear her? Mark says the disciples rebuked those who were trying to bring children to Jesus. And he's using a word that he's used before. This is the same word that he uses when Jesus rebukes demons. It's the same word he uses when Peter tried to correct Jesus about his messianic mission. It's the same word he uses when Jesus corrected Peter in return. These disciples are making the same mistakes over and over again. They are still spiritually blind. They are on a completely different wavelength from Jesus. In chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, we saw that after the disciples had argued about which of them was the greatest, Jesus brought a little child right into their huddle and taught them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Here they were, stopping Jesus himself from receiving children, acting like bodyguards when they should have been ushers. They had probably told Jesus how they had stopped some guy who wasn't with them from casting out demons 
in Jesus' name. And Jesus had corrected them. But here they were again with their elitism, stopping people from coming to Jesus. Mark unashamedly presents these men who went on to become pillars of the early church that he was writing to in their worst moments. But he doesn't mean for us to look down on them. He means for us to look across at them. He wants us to learn from them and to see ourselves in them. They are a very good illustration of how intractable the attitudes we learn from our culture can be, even in the face of clear teaching from Jesus to the contrary. They have ears, but they're still not hearing. It didn't even occur to them in their zeal that Jesus might not approve of what they were doing on his behalf, much less that he'd be infuriated by it. And he was livid with them. I mean, imagine the disciples' shock. This is the only passage in the Gospels where Jesus' anger is described in this way. He vented his anger on his disciples. They knew he was angry because he expressed it clearly. And that should attract our attention. Jesus' disciples have made many missteps along this journey. And he's patiently born with them a lot of the time and expresses frustration in other moments. But here he is furious. Why does Mark want us to see this particular portrait of Jesus? The intensity of Jesus' anger at his disciples reveals the intensity and extent of his compassion for these children. They were among the downtrodden and vulnerable whom he was drawn worthy of his attention. He wanted to welcome them as his honored guests. He didn't want to hug them because they were cute. He wanted to communicate the love of God to them. This is Jesus announcing the kingdom in his actions. This is the heart of the king on display. Throughout his ministry, Jesus hasn't looked to prop up his kingdom by surrounding himself with the powerful and the influential. Instead, he's been with the poor. He's been with tax collectors and sinners. He's been with outcasts. He's been with the demon-possessed and lepers and the sick and Gentiles. And now he is welcoming and blessing children. In his ministry, Jesus' actions mirror the character of God revealed in the Old Testament who identifies himself with the weak and the downtrodden. Jesus came to turn this broken world upside down. The hierarchy that was so wired into his disciples was an expression of a fallen world. In the moment when they barred those children from accessing Jesus, they, his representatives, were misrepresenting the heart of the king and the nature of his kingdom. They were using their power to maintain the status quo and to oppress the weak instead of elevating them. They were standing between Jesus and those he came to have compassion on. But it's more at play here. There's something fundamental that Jesus' disciples were failing to see. It wasn't just a cultural blind spot either. They were suffering from a spiritual blind spot. So, as he often did, Jesus went beyond rebuking them and taught them this foundational truth. Jesus' disciples must receive the kingdom like children. We're going to be focusing on the second half of verse 14 into verse 15. So look right there in your Bibles with me. Jesus says some very surprising things about children and the kingdom of God. I'm going to read that section again. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus insists that the disciples should grant the children access to him. 
He gives them a reason for his instruction. And then he explains that reason further. But right at the heart of this passage, Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like little children. There's a lot to see here. All the way back in chapter 1, we saw how Jesus began his ministry announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is, the, is God's rule, his sphere of, of, of blessing. It's populated by the new family that Jesus has been gathering. He's saying that that kingdom belongs to those who are like little children. Like little children in what way? In wider Western thought, we tend to think of children as innocent, you know, still unspoiled by life and, and maybe even morally good. That's a part of why we see mistreating children as particularly evil. That's a part of why our hearts break when we hear of these cases of abuse and neglect. Yet somehow that idea manages to coexist with another thought that we have here in Jamaica. People just bad. You know, just look at them, just bad. I'm going bad. Here at GFC, we've tried to teach a biblical view that's calibrated better than either of those thoughts. Our children are made in the image of God, reflecting His glory, and at the same time are sinners in miniature, reflecting our fallenness. But none of that is precisely where Jesus is going at the moment. The people of Jesus' day did not see children as innocent. They saw them as insignificant. That's what Jesus is zeroing in on. Small, needy, helpless, Powerless, dependent. Everything the disciples and the culture of the day despise about children is exactly what makes them the kind of people to whom God's kingdom belongs. What Jesus says here is very similar to what he says in Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, 3 to 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are insignificant and weak and needy and dependent. Okay. We need to ask the question why that is. And Jesus will explain. But there's something I want you to notice right here. Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to certain people. It's one thing to say that people belong to the kingdom. It's another thing to say that the kingdom belongs to people. And it's consistent with how he teaches in the Beatitudes in Matthew also. Theirs is the kingdom. They shall inherit the earth. The citizens of God's kingdom are not merely his subjects. They are shareholders. They are owners. They are heirs. What that means is that Jesus is the kind of king who came not to rule tyrannically over us, but to share his blessings with us. For sure, to be a citizen of the kingdom is to live under God's rule. He is our king. We are to listen to him. He is owed absolute obedience. And that in and of itself is a good thing. Outside of God's rule, we were slaves to sin. And we were sure to earn the wages of sin, which is death. Now we have been set free to serve a better master. Yet, on top of that, he plans to share everything that's rightfully, that rightfully belongs to him with us. You see, when we come to Jesus, we become God's sons. All disciples, male and female, are given sonship as a status, and therefore we are God's heirs. It would make sense for God to come and to reestablish his rightful rule over rebels. It makes no sense for him to come and bestow his kingdom on repentant rebels. But such is the greatness of his grace. But the question still remains. 
Why does the kingdom belong to those who are like children? Jesus explains in verse 15. And he's emphatic here. Sometimes when you're doing business, you know, you, you might need to take your address to the bank. And you need to take a form and get it stamped by Justice of the Peace to say, this is my address, to, to prove the validity of the information you put there. Everything that Jesus says is true. But when he begins with the expression translated, truly, I say to you, he's stamping his own statement. He's expressing his unique authority. He's also using a highlighter to focus our eyes on a particularly important truth. And he ends this particular statement with a negation that's very strong in the original language. The ESV says, shall not, but the gravity of it is more like, shall certainly not. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Now it's critical for us to understand this statement. Jesus' disciples must receive the kingdom like a child. This is the only way it can be received. It must be received the way a child receives things. James Edwards explains, To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credit, no clout, no claims. We must come not with our good deeds and resumes in hand, but with empty hands. We must come not looking to our accomplishments to endear us to God, but looking to Him for His mercy, fully dependent on Him. And this relates to how we receive not only God's blessings, but also His rule. We must come knowing that we have no wisdom with which to govern our lives, eager for His word and His wisdom. We must come knowing that we are bankrupt. A hustler thinks that they have all the skills to take care of themselves. I mean, they might be like the help, but they can do this. A beggar knows that they're in need of the mercy of another. And this childlike faith is not just an entry requirement. It is to characterize our whole journey of discipleship. It is those who receive the kingdom who will enter the kingdom. It's likely that in speaking of entering the kingdom, Jesus is pointing not to the present reality of the kingdom of God, but to its consummation in the future. When he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels, as he talked about in chapter 8. This highlights the seriousness of what he was saying for his disciples then and for us as his disciples now. The pride, the elitism, the self-importance that they were displaying wasn't just a misrepresentation of the king. It threatened to keep them out of the kingdom. He didn't just want them to let the children come to him. He wanted them to learn from these children about the posture they needed to have as his followers. In chapter 9, as we reflected on it, Jesus took a little child and placed him among the disciples as an object lesson. An example of those the disciples most privileged and welcome if they are to be like Jesus. Now clearly they missed that lesson. Now he's presenting the children they were rejecting as living parables about the kingdom of God. They were living, breathing reminders of how they must come to him. Of the dependence that God delights in. The dependence that's indispensable if they are to receive the kingdom. The king, who is the inexhaustible source of everything, is not put off by weakness and neediness. He is drawn to it, in fact. He loves to pour himself out for us. He is glorified when we bring our needs to him. Our self-importance will disqualify us, but our needs will not. Jesus' disciples must receive the kingdom like little children. Now, we don't know if those disciples understood what Jesus was trying to teach them on that particular day. But we have very good reason to believe that they got it eventually. 
As we'll come to see, it had a visible impact on the early church. And it must impact us too. Jesus' teaching must shape our attitude to children. Part and parcel of learning to follow Jesus is learning to love those that he loved. It's learning to love the outcast and the overlooked, the marginalized and the mistreated. So Jesus' love for children must challenge us. But this isn't about blind emulation. It's the love that he has displayed to us in our need and helplessness that must soften our hearts towards the needy and helpless. When we look at children and see our spiritual state of helplessness reflected in them, it will change our attitude to them. It's hard to look down on your own reflection. Jesus' countercultural attitude to children had a massive and measurable impact on the early church. The people who were the original recipients of Mark's gospel lived as communities that were dramatically different from the Greco-Roman culture around them. You see some of that right in the letters of the New Testament. In the world of that day, religion was primarily a domain for men. Women, slaves, and children were treated as insignificant. Yet in the letters we have to the churches, amazingly, there are instructions addressed directly to children. That means that as the letters were read in the gathered church, children were given a place among them to hear the good news of the gospel and what its implications were, even for them. To be called to obey God is to be counted as significant. It's a reflection of moral responsibility. It's a reflection of the value that Jesus placed on children. There's an anonymous letter to a man named Diognetus. Diognetus. Can't pronounce old Greek names very well. Diognetus. But this letter has been preserved for us. Historians think it might date as early as the second century. It describes Christians, this new group of people at length, Exploring how they were like everyone else, yet very different. Here's one line from this letter. They marry and have children, just like everyone else. But they do not kill unwanted babies. You see, it was normal in Roman society to abandon unwanted children on the garbage heaps of the cities. And of course, most of those babies were girls. It wasn't just that the early Christians did, didn't abandon their children. They would rescue abandoned children and raise them in their families. And that took faith because the early church wasn't generally populated by rich people. They added mouths to feed because Jesus valued these children. And it had a surprising and amazing result. The church grew rapidly within a few generations because these children grew up and embraced the Christian faith. Those are just some of the ways Jesus' teaching shaped the attitude of the early church to children. But what about us? What are the tangible ways in which Jesus' welcome of children and his teaching about the nature of the kingdom of God should be shaping us? We live in an, in an individualistic culture where we are wired for selfishness and independence. That's why aging and illness are so hard for us. It's also why we can become so annoyed with children when we have to care for them. They constantly have needs. They're constantly calling you. One of the most tempting times for me still is when we put the kids to bed and it's supposed to be my time. I have to control my responses when there's a knock on the door. Because I just want some time. And I'm wondering why are they coming? And I've learned over the years not to be like, yes! You know, but to be like, yes. Because sometimes it's important. Sometimes. 
Sometimes it's not important, but they're important. You know, but that can grate on us, can't it? The constant needs and the fact that they can't always take care of their own uh, their own needs. <laughs> yeah, I hear that amen, sister. I hear it. I hear it. We are with you. We are praying for you, girl. We live in a time and place where our obligation to children is generally acknowledged. We believe that children have rights. Most people don't recognize that that idea grew from the soil of Christianity. But it's not enough to recognize an obligation to children because you can honor an obligation grudgingly and with bitterness. A few months ago, I was right here up at the golf club. I was sitting out on the terrace one morning. And a woman came in with her son and sat down some distance from me. I figure the son was probably about seven years old. Soon after they sat down, he asked her for something. Um, you know, I, I recognized, I wasn't hearing the whole conversation, but I recognized by the cues that he was hungry. I was asking her about breakfast, but in the kind of whining way that children can. I mean, she lambasted the boy. I mean, I don't know what happened prior to that, before they, they got up here. But the way she spoke to him in tone and in substance was just cruel. And everything that she said after him, to him after that that morning just communicated how much of a bother he was to her. Uh, and it was interesting because some adults joined her a little bit later. And it was notable that she never spoke to any of the adults in that way. And that's not uncommon in Jamaica. And I think a lot of people find it uncomfortable. But the typical defense is at least she's taking care of him. Our parenting as Christians cannot reflect this aspect of our culture. It's a far cry from the love Jesus displayed to children. He delighted in them. He welcomed them. We are called to do the same. We're not excused from displaying the fruit of the Spirit to our children, no matter how wearying parenting is. Jesus is challenging us to see children in a different light. Having children around us, particularly small children who need constant care, is a gift from God. It's an ever-present opportunity to remember what we are really like, spiritually speaking. There's so much more that Jesus is teaching challenges. The culture teaches us to think of children and to think of their price tag. Jesus teaches us to value them, to cherish and treasure them. If our culture sees greatness as personal achievements in the sphere of work and building wealth for ourselves, how do you think that's going to influence our thoughts about how many children we should seek to have and when we should seek to begin having children? If according to Jesus, true greatness is serving the least, shouldn't we esteem parenting? The middle class believes that responsible parenting is providing for a university degree for each of your children. Jesus teaches us that for Christian parents, parenting is discipleship. As the author Chapman says, we work hard to prepare them not for graduation day, but for the judgment day. That means that Christian parents need to be concerned with bringing our children to Jesus and the many ways in which we can inadvertently hinder them from coming to him. So, I mean, a couple of reflections on just what this could look like. I mean, there are many, many areas, and I decided just to touch on a few. But one of the reasons that it's worthwhile to come into attending church as a family is that it communicates the importance of Jesus and Christian community to our children. We are having a massive challenge with fathers who are good men, but communicate to their children by their behavior that there are many more important things than pursuing Jesus in community and sitting on his word. If we have more time, we could explore lots of ways we can hinder our children from coming to Jesus. But let me highlight just one. 
When we do not have a practice of confessing sin to our children, we obstruct and obscure the path, their path to Jesus. What we're teaching them is that growing up is really about ignoring and excusing our sin. But when we confess our sins to them, particularly when we sin against them, that becomes an occasion to show them how we ourselves look to Jesus as the one who forgives and restores. There, there are a ton of other connections we can make here. Maybe something we can explore in another setting as we talk this through. Uh, we could talk about our attitude to adoption and fostering. We could talk about sex trafficking. But I'll limit myself to one more. This passage has to shape how we think about abortion. Abortion is a complex and emotionally charged and deeply polarizing subject. Particularly because our legislation around it is under consideration in Parliament at the moment. It's a topic we're going to need to give attention to in the near future. And I hope that you've already seen some connections to, to the idea of abortion at several points in this sermon. I hope you've seen the resemblance between the dismissive attitude of Jesus' disciples, the callous attitude of the Greco-Roman culture to children, and the attitude of post-Christian Western world to children who have not yet been born. And I want to share a quotation from pastor and author J.D. Greer as he writes on this subject. He contends, there is no group more helpless and vulnerable today than children in the womb. If you look at, I'll just interject, if you look at the stats in terms of abortion, where they have kept statistics, it's staggering the number of children that are killed in the womb. It's, it's shocking. It outstrips any world war we've seen. It doesn't even make sense. He says, scientifically and scripturally, there's no question about how Jesus feels about these little children. Let them come to me, he says. Their lives are precious and valuable. You see, this passage puts a burden on us to seek to understand God's will in this matter. And to listen to the arguments and weigh them carefully. We have to walk compassionately with people, yes. But we also have to have clear convictions in this area. And it's, it's going to be important for us to seek to understand how we might be called to speak up and act on behalf of these vulnerable ones. Jesus' teaching must shape our attitude to children, including the unborn. The way Jesus welcomed children reveals the nature of God's kingdom and the values his followers are to embrace. Jesus valued children and he taught his disciples that unless they received the kingdom of God with childlike dependence, they would never enter it. His example and his teaching must shape our discipleship and our attitude to children. Today we have seen yet another area where we are being called to please our king rather than to please ourselves. To put ourselves last and to become servants of all rather than to position ourselves for comfort and greatness in the eyes of the world. Jesus' love for children and his teaching about them affects everything from how we think and speak about children to our public advocacy. When you become aware of Jesus' standard, you also become aware of the ways in which you're falling short of it. But the good news is that our King still receives us, his foolish and sinful children. Come on. He invites us to come to him for the forgiveness he purchased with his own blood and to live out repentance even as he strengthens us for costly discipleship. Yes, yes. Let's recognize and give thanks for the blessing we have as a community. These children that the Lord has given us. May we care for them together and lead them to him. May we not hinder them from coming to him. And may we see in them, particularly in the smallest of them, our own constant spiritual need that Jesus is delighted to meet. Yes.
Let's pray. Yes, yes, yes. Lord, we thank you for... You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.